Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. We are here the week of June 13th through June 16th, 2023. It took me a little while to figure out what date it is. It is a beautiful date. It is a beautiful date. June fl- flying, just flying. flying by. But those mid June Nebraska nights. Oh, just muggy. No wind beautiful muggy i thought it was wonderful like today you look if i was a swinger of sticks in ball chaser and i played golf yeah i would not be here right now that's true this is ideal situation yeah we're we're not very good lawyers are we that's what we should be doing oh man we should be chasing things we should be chasing a a white ball around uh having some bevies hey there's a bevies Bring back bevies. Speaking of bevies, uh, I don't know how in tune you are with uh, juvenile children culture. Somebody solved a Rubik's Cube in 3.2 seconds. That that seems fake. Is that fake? No, it's not. And then now they own the world record. It's 100% real. And it's really... It's a quick view if you want to watch the video. <laughs> it's quick, quick read, quick, quick, quick read. glance. Yeah, quick glance. But if you want to take it out, that's fine. What do we got for? How the can ex- your hands even move that fast? By the way, it's, before we- it's remarkable. Take a look at it. Okay. All right. I don't know. Three second Rubik's cube. Yeah. Ex parte summary. State versus Elias. Phone tower dump. Uh, Brush v. W. O. Zanger and Son Incorporated. Uh, contract interpretation, summary judgment, ambiguity, other documents. That was almost not ex parte. I know. Schaefer versus Gable. Good time. State v. Aldena Cardenas. Juvenile jurisdiction and majority moot? Question mark. Okay. All right, let's get going. Dive into them. So first case we come to is State versus Elias. This is an appeal from a jury conviction of second-degree murder, unlawful discharge of a firearm, two counts of use of a weapon to commit a felony. And the big issues here, it the facts are pretty g- generic in that it was a group of people in a vehicle, I believe four individuals, who are looking to rob a drug dealer and were driving around this area. Then there's another vehicle that was, I believe, a Ford Explorer that allegedly is driven by Elias, who sees these people driving around looking to rob a drug dealer and confronts them. Uh, Ironically enough, he is a drug dealer, and so it is alleged that he believed that he was one of the ones who was going to be robbed. The two vehicles pull up to each other, and the Explorer shoots into the other vehicle and drives away. And that's what results in the death of one of the individuals and leads to these charges. The interesting part of this piece is that at the time of the shooting, nobody knows who it is. At the time of the shooting, the only thing they really know is some of the video footage, which shows an explorer that they eventually tie to Elias and some other things. But what they instantly do is law enforcement go and take what's called a tower dump of all of the cell phone information from that area for 15 minutes prior to the shooting and 15 minutes after the shooting. And they do it at the time because apparently cell companies only store this uh, data for approximately 10 days. And so they go do this almost instantly. Law enforcement does this. And it's not even until they're deep into this investigation that they actually use this information. But that becomes one of the huge issues here in the the crux of of Elias's argument is that this cell phone data should be protected and there's a United States Supreme Court case uh, called Carpenter that goes into protection of cell site data but anyway Elias is convicted 
And on appeal, he's arguing two things, the tower dump and and 404 evidence. And so the 404 evidence comes out of uh, evidence that he was a uh, drug dealer, that he was a victim of a robbery prior to this incident, and that he owned firearms. And a couple of the things that I'll note here is that an officer testifies to a lot of Elias's actions prior to this, his drug dealing, things of those nature. And his attorney objects to this officer's testimony and then um, asks for a running objection and is given that. But after that, there's multiple other witnesses who testify to the same thing and the attorney forgets to or chooses not to object to that testimony. And the Supreme Court goes back here to uh, reaffirm that in order to preserve an objection to evidence at issue, that objection has to be renewed each time with each new witness, uh, even if you have a running objection and here it was not. And so the objection is waived and the evidence coming in through the testimonies, all this other wit- all these other witnesses was allowed. And then the court goes on to also address that even if that hadn't happened or even if all those objections had happened, the evidence here was still relevant anyway because it showed a motive and, and more went to that rather than character evidence. And then we get to the cell site data issue here. And again, there's a really good discussion of this. And so if you have any cases with this, go look at it. But the the 10,000 foot overview that I will give you is essentially this was an exception. And our court finds that this is an exception because it, it is a single snapshot of data at a limited place for a very limited time. And so they're here. They're saying that because it was just this 30 minutes in total, the 15 minutes prior, the 15 minutes after, and it's the phone towers nearest to the scene of the shooting there is no issue here and that basically the district court looked at it as you know you're not allowed to see what somebody's doing behind a closed door in your house and here the door remained closed for the entirety of holding this data and it wasn't until they figured out that maybe Elias was the person and got his phone that they opened that door and looked in and at that that point in time that's when there would have been a violation and there wasn't a violation because they had probable cause and all of those things and then the supreme court also goes into that even if there should be an exclusionary rule here there probably is a good faith exception and they discuss the good faith exception to the exclusionary rule and give us a good discussion on that so again if you have any, anything with that cell site data applying the united states supreme court law to nebraska law a uh, good discussion there a lot of good overview of all the other case law that exists in that area but in the end and the case was affirmed. Okay, I have Brush and Company versus W.O. Zanger and Son, Inc. This is a mess, and it's a farming operation contract that goes on uh, since the 80s, started in the 80s. They did some amendments. They did some shareholder agreements. They did some operating and management agreements, and then they did some leases, and they leased this place called the South Place uh, as part of their agreement. And they had a rental lease agreement regarding the South Place. And the South Place uh, had a minimum rent, and it said it was going to last for a certain amount of time, and they were going to renegotiate every three years. And if the minimum rental rate wasn't um, agreed to, then there were other rates or it would automatically terminate. And it also referenced several other agreements in this lease that um, they had between the parties regarding this agricultural ground. Now... The district court granted partial summary judgment on one of the big issues, which was the termination of the agreement, whether it was terminated and and what the damages were as far as a minimal rental rate that could have been obtained from the next year. Um, The court at the trial court level found that there was, you know, no issue of genuine uh, or genuine issue of material fact 
and that the as far as what the contract said and that it would be terminated and that was uh, what was granted as far as a summary judgment is concerned on that issue then the trial court allowed it to go to trial on the issue of whether there was good faith and fair dealing on that in, implicit uh, term of every agreement whether there was good faith and fair dealing so she went allowed that to go to f- trial whether there was you know and ultimately at, at trial uh, she found that there was a lack of evidence regarding uh, good faith and any that there wasn't good faith and fair dealing so that the um, contract was uh, it stood so on appeal uh, the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court here actually reverses the um, trial court and on the issue of the summary judgment on whether it is um, the termination of the agreement was that there was no genuine issue of material fact regarding that and that has to go to a lot of contract interpretation. There's um, some good law chunks here on contract interpretation and when summary judgment is appropriate. And here the court found that there was some ambiguity on whether the uh, and, and logical mind and uh, logical arguments on both sides as to whether there was ambiguity regarding the contract and the, especially with it referencing other documents. So the court um, uh, overruled, or excuse me, reversed the trial court's decision on the partial summary judgment and reversed it and remanded it for further proceedings uh, regarding that issue of material fact for trial. Okay. Uh, next case we come to is Schaefer versus uh, Gable. And this is kind of an interesting case just based on the case that um, you had, John, a few weeks, of go- weeks ago. And the reason that is interesting is because this is an appeal from a denial of a petition for a writ of habeas corpus. And it all stems from an individual, Schaefer, who was convicted of first-degree murder at 17 in Hall County in 1977 and then was granted post-conviction relief based on Miller versus Alabama, which, again, was what ties into you and, and goes back to the case that you talked about uh, a week or two ago. And then at that point in time, he was resentenced to 70 to 90 years. And where this case got complicated is that now Schaefer asserts that under the relevant statutes, he has reached his mandatory discharge date on January 3rd, 2022, and therefore uh, this case should be absolutely discharged and he should be released from custody. And this case gets incredibly complicated. And, and so if if you ever have any issues on good time and calculating good time and calculating good time over super, super long periods of time, this case is the one for you because it reads like a law review article. Because what ends up happening here is that there is, one, a ton of good time to deal with, multiple cases and multiple different felonies to deal with, but then also different good time laws that were in place at the time you're calculating the good time. And so the way that the good time is calculated is different depending on what good time law was in place at the time that the offense occurred or then at the time that the things were being calculated. And so there is a ton of discussion on that. And basically, uh, the respondents here are arguing that um, all of the time served had been credited to the murder and that there were other assault felonies that were still remaining to be served. And because um, of the good time law that was in, in effect at the time that those sentences were imposed, it applied to those sentences and there was still time that should exist. And so Schaefer's arguing that the current good time law should be applied to everything and that it should be a- absolutely discharged. And then that they, they also have to deal with a uh, jurisdictional issue. And so I'll just briefly uh, cover that. And here they they discuss quite a bit over the difference between jurisdictional priority 
and lack of of jurisdiction and so here you know they're talking about how jurisdictional priority doesn't deal with subject matter jurisdiction or personal jurisdiction or having jurisdiction it simply deals with which court uh, should have power over it and so again if you want a discussion over uh, those jurisdictional issues and, and courts having simultaneous jurisdiction and priority jurisdiction this is a great case for that but in the end uh, what the court comes to conclude here is that the department of corrections had applied the correct procedures for determining schaefer's tentative release date by essentially aggregating the four sentences that existed, applying the um, good time law that was in effect and in place when the first of the aggregated sentences became final in 1979, and then calculating it based on that, um, he still had time to be served, so he should not be absolutely discharged. Uh, again, I'm giving a 10-second rundown of a case that you know took pages and pages and pages, so if you have any of those good time issues talking about how good time exists, that now only court orders can give credit for good time under the new laws and all those kind of things. Great discussion of that, but um, I'm not going to get too far into the weeds just because I don't know that it would be helpful for this pod. And, you know, what's amazing is that when you get into this profession, who knew that you would have to do forensic accounting of good time? And that's basically what they're doing is they're going back and figuring out uh, in this box, what is this ma- what is this worth and all these other things in order to figure out what the good time is, right? Oh, 100%. And again, here, and I, I mean, I'm guessing there's probably some kind of computer programs that help quite a bit with the Department of Corrections. But otherwise, I mean, it, it has to be an arduous process to go through, again, all of the <laughs> various court orders, crediting good time on different sentences, on different counts. Yeah. I mean, it, it has to be unreal. I mean, I'm anticipating a room full of uh, different ages of computers with different DOS programs on them <laughs> go in that are completely tailored to that specific statutory scheme and then you go in and you type it up and then you have your little clipboard and you write how much it is and wow yeah hard. and I mean it's one of those where you don't want to mess it up because yeah. what is the value of one day oh, exactly. 10 days 100 days I mean exactly exponential yeah. so all right I had a uh, state v Aldina uh, Cardenas, um, Mr. Aldina was charged with first degree sexual assault when he was 17 years old. Um, that's important. He moved to transfer after the information was filed in district court. He moved to transfer it to juvenile court. Um, and there was a hearing relatively quickly, um, be- be on the issue of whether there was a sound basis for retention in the district court, uh, or whether it should be transferred over to district court or excuse me, to juvenile court. So at the hearing, the state offered evidence from a probation officer and um, other information regarding what type of uh, you know treatment might be available to Mr. Aldina in uh, juvenile court. And the defense also offered information in the form of emails and that generally spoke to what programs might be available for someone who would be uh, potentially convicted or found under the statute uh, in juvenile court to uh, be amenable to those kind of rehabilitative services that they have in juvenile court. Ultimately, the district court found that there was a sound basis for retention, and the juvenile here appealed. Now, remember how old he was? He was 17, and uh, then he turns 18 while the appeal is pending. So the state argues, well, that's moot now. Uh, The juvenile court doesn't have any jurisdiction over anybody over the age of 18, 
so you can't be uh, going to juvenile court. So it's not there's no juvenile probation services available after his 19th birthday. So what we have to do is just kick this. It's not ju- uh, you can't uh, do anything with it because it's moot. And the state argued this mootness, which the um, Supreme Court, uh, Nebraska Supreme Court, goes into detail here. Start argued that this Polly case from last year stood for that the age it's the age of the juvenile at uh, the time of the transfer, not the uh, time of the offense. And here, the Nebraska Supreme Court cites Polly as defining juvenile as it's the age when the individual is charged, not the date of the offense. Uh, not the date of the transfer to juvenile court. It's the day, uh, the age when charged. And my mind wanders a little bit. So uh, as far as the sides go, because you're like, well, now if it's a serious enough crime and the juvenile is 14, maybe they wait until he's 18 to charge him with a whole bunch of stuff. I don't know. That's where my mind goes. So uh, they found a sound basis for retention in the district court. And there's uh, lots of discussion about, you know, that 17 to 19 bubble and, and what goes which way uh, and whether the juvenile court can have jurisdiction in those kinds of situations. But because of the expedited juvenile transfer procedure, there's not a, that, and that was the whole reason for that expedited juvenile transfer procedure is when you have a 17-year-old charged with something, um, you want to try and figure out what court so they can get the services as soon as possible. The district court, or excuse me, the Nebraska Supreme Court here went through the entire alphabet uh, factors of uh, juvenile transfer jurisdiction and found that there was no abuse of discretion because there was a sound basis for retention based on the circumstances here. So it wasn't moot just because he turned 18 and that there was a sound basis so that uh, the district court here was affirmed. That's it for Supreme Court. I think that's all we got for the Supreme Court. Jumping straight into the Court of Appeals. First case we come to is Nelson versus Lom. And this is an appeal from an administrative license revocation and then the affirming of that by the Sheridan uh, County District Court. And the big thing at issue here is if the DMV was devoid of jurisdiction because the arresting officer had never or did not give enough information to demonstrate that the driver uh, was actually in control and driving the motor vehicle. And so here the relevant piece is the sworn report of notice of revocation and temporary license. And here it has the individual's name handwritten under the heading driver name, the date of arrest, the time of arrest. And then there's a text that the officer writes that essentially says that the person was observed inside their vehicle on 200th lane near the intersection of 750th road upon deputy Lair's arrival the individual had mumbled speech bloodshot watery eyes and an odor of alcoholic beverage nelson then refused a pbt and data master test and so this is what was submitted to the dmv there's an administrative hearing that's conducted by phone. At that point in time, the attorney for Nelson objects to the re- re- receipt of the report based on the fact that it does not convey jurisdiction to the DMV and then objects continuing on that report because it is uh, devoid of demonstrating that Nelson is the driver of this vehicle. And so that becomes the crux of this case. There's a ton of discussion on essentially what 
in the sworn report has to uh, exist to convey jurisdiction to the DMV and to be able to revoke a driver's license and what you actually must demonstrate in order to show that the individual is the driver. And there's a bunch of discussion of cases. And the big thing that happens here is that the Court of Appeals uh, notes that the cases that are cited from the appellant are different because the change in the sworn affidavit now identifies the person arrested as the named driver, not just as an individual. And so because here the officer identified Nelson as the identified driver and then listed that he was stopped at an intersection and all the other factors, that was enough in totality to find that there was a reasonable inference from the report that Nelson was operating or was in physical control of the vehicle and um, was intoxicated near the intersection, and therefore the district court didn't err in affirming the administration administrative license revocation of Nelson. State v. Janus, it's a criminal appeal for operation of a vehicle to avoid arrest uh, in a willful, reckless manner. He uh, pled no contest to that. That's a class four felony sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. He appeals, and he says that uh, that was an excessive sentence because it was a class four felony, and you need to focus on probationary factors unless they're substantial and compelling uh, you know, reasons for you to not send me to probation. The um, plaintiff appealed for failure to the state, appealed for failure to revoke the license, which was required. Now, here are the facts um, that were established at the trial. He led uh, law enforcement on a chase with a motor vehicle that was in excess of 100 miles per hour, ended up um, blowing, I'm not sure whether it was blowing or blood, but uh, 0.165 was the blood alcohol content. There were two young children in the vehicle with their mother. So the uh, district court here uh, sent him uh, to 18 months imprisonment, and the um, uh, Nebraska Court of Appeals found no abusive discretion for that uh, 18 months imprisonment, and, and does provide some kind of context for what is substantial and compelling. So if you have a, a concern that some class four felony that you're up for sentencing on uh, may be on the bubble of substantial and compelling, there's at least some fleshing out of what that means uh, in the um, class four felony world here. They did find plain error though regarding the license revocation. They said that for the felony, uh, it's mandatory for the misdemeanor uh, operating to avoid arrest, it would be discretionary. But here it's mandatory, so they revoked his license for two years, and they affirmed as modified. Okay, next case we come to is In Re Estate of Orville Filsinger. And the big issue in this appeal, which they talk about that this case, and I actually think we've maybe had this case on this pod, but it's come up multiple times and has been a, around a lot. The big issues on this appeal are um, just the allowance of uh, paying attorney's fees for the personal representative and then also the personal representative paying himself an additional personal representative fee. And so there's some pretty good discussion of this, quite a bit of background discussion. And there also is a, a good discussion of the um, 
applicability of the acceptance of benefits rule that I would encourage people if you have an issue there, maybe just to take a glance at. I don't know that there's anything groundbreaking in there, but I think there is some decent discussion of it. And then the other piece is that when it goes into the paying of the attorney's fees, it talks about how they're not going to, they're um, not wanting to disrupt what the county court did as far as the attorney's fees. But with one of the attorneys, there was allegedly an affidavit for his attorney's fees that was supposed to have been attached and was supposed to exist in the record, but it was never actually offered and accepted. And so they couldn't review that affidavit and therefore they remand that to the county court to have an evidentiary hearing to be able to determine whether or not those attorney's fees were appropriate and actually should have been paid. The interesting piece here is I feel like the the county courts probably already considered that because they said that the affidavit did exist, but either way they do remand that and send it back down for the county court uh, to consider uh, whether or not those attorney's fees were appropriate. State v. O'Neill, defendant was convicted by jury of first-degree sexual assault and child abuse. Uh, the um, uh, is- interesting issues here are there was a request to discharge trial counsel, and the um, trial court had a hearing on the defendant's request to discharge trial counsel. And the defendant, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically is saying the uh, defense attorney is not in my corner. That might be a quote, but a uh, defense attorney is not in my corner. Uh, he's not, uh, she's not fighting for me or, or he or she, I don't remember, but they're not fighting for me. They're not on my side and they're not doing um, those types of activities. He, and they're basically based on feelings. What the district court did, and I thought this was interesting, uh, is they removed the prosecutor from the courtroom, and then they went and basically interviewed the defendant and said, well, why do you want a new lawyer? And uh, established this record. And the um, Court of Appeals here, in this very, what I believe to be a well-written opinion, pulls from the record, uh, really detailed and educational parts of the record so that it kind of fleshes out why uh, and better standards maybe for when there could be a request to discharge trial counsel and what factors a trial court should consider. And and additionally, um, there was a failure to permit impeachment. It was alleged as an assignment of error. And they go through and they cite the record that shows that the uh, individual that the defendant here is alleging wasn't impeached was actually confronted with prior inconsistent statements. And here's all the inconsistent statements citing from the record. So you can sit there and read the record on it. It's um, the third issue here for assignments of error would be sufficiency of evidence. And the uh, Court of Appeals here found that the evidence was sufficient to convict the defendant of first-degree sexual assault and child abuse. Therefore, it was affirmed. All right, next came we, next case we come to is Deegis versus Deegis, and this is an appeal from the decree of de- dissolution in the District Court of Cass County, and the big issues here are whether or not the court abused its discretion in awarding alimony and attorney's fees. Um, the facts, again, are, are pretty arduous as far as uh, heavy with Um, what we typically see in these divorce cases. And the alimony payments here, uh, the big issue is that the wife was not able to uh, earn as much money because she hadn't been in the United States uh, a ton of time. She was originally from Poland, and so English was not her first language. And so there was a a 
pretty decent income disparity there. Um, the court did not find an abuse of discretion. And then the court also, again, as we see in these attorney's fees, uh, if attorney's fees are appropriate, um, and then if the um, if the court finds uh, that they want to um, order those attorney's fees paid, then we have an abuse of discretion here. They didn't find um, an abuse of discretion, found the attorney's fees appropriate and affirmed. In the interest of Coda G, this is a civil uh, termination of parental rights. The allegation on appeal was the sufficiency of evidence. Uh, the mother here, the father actually uh, relinquished parental rights at a previous hearing. The mother here had been involved with the department uh, and services with the department since 2015. And there was some showing of, this is, this is an interesting part of this case. There was a distinction between some showing of unfitness as required for best interests versus and that it does not equal parental unfitness. So there's a distinction between what parental unfitness is and some showing of unfitness. Uh, so you're not always unfit, uh, but there's just some areas where you are unfit. Uh, specifically here, there was a failure to maintain separation from a, the significant other who relinquished the father here. So, and that apparently, I, I don't think it got into the details of that, but um, that was apparently a safety concern for the children. So the termination of parental rights for this mother was affirmed on appeal. Okay, next came, case that we come to is in the interest of Avion J. And here this is an appeal from the Juvenile Court of Douglas County continuing a temporary custody of um, a child with the Department of Health and Human Services and excluding placement in the mother's parental home. And here the big issue was that there was domestic violence in the home and the mother continued to have contact with the individual who um, had been the domestic abuser. And here the court notes that uh, the mother was still showing sympathy and concern for the domestic abuser after uh, the child's birth and had told uh, the HHS individuals that she'd still been communicating with this individual. And so um, here they affirmed the uh, juvenile court's order of temporary custody um, with a, of the individual of the, the juvenile child with HHS um, and excluding placement with the mother. State v. Uh Furstenfeld, State v. Furstenfeld. This is a criminal appeal. Um, there's a allegation for an assignment of error for failure to uh, permit withdrawing of a plea. This was a plea-based conviction for uh, two different cases, and they they requested that the pleas be withdrawn because the this is the gist of it. The the trial counsel didn't feel like the defendant understood what was going on. And that was pretty much all the evidence that was offered at the hearing um, was that the trial counsel didn't uh, feel that the defendant understood what was going on. And there may have been some mental health issues there too. So um, the district court found that the, um, the defendant knowingly, intelligently, and voluntarily waived their rights at the hearing and were found competent, otherwise found competent by the prior district court judge. I think there were two judges who uh, were involved in these. So the district court judge uh, found on the record that the defendant was competent to uh, waive their rights and enter their pleas at the plea hearing. So they did not find any reason to reverse that. Further, they didn't find any ineffective assistance of counsel uh, based on the motion to withdraw a plea because they didn't have any, the 
they didn't have any evidence that the um, defendant didn't knowingly, voluntarily, and intelligently waive their rights uh, at the plea hearing. So there was no uh, ineffective assistance of counsel, and the uh, defendant was found competent in a prior hearing. There was no evidence to contradict that, so the failure to withdraw plea was all affirmed. Okay, next case we come to is Coe versus Coe. Uh, this is an appeal from a renewal of a domestic abuse protection order. Uh, and the argument on appeal is that the district court erred in renewing the protection order without holding a hearing. However, here, Co did not ask for the hearing within the 10 days, and the rest of his assignments of error uh, failed uh, for various reasons. And that's a brief, short, three-page opinion. Quickly, though, is it Co or is it Koch, or is it Koch? How do you pronounce K-O-C-H? Uh, Co. That is Co in my neighborhood. It's Co in my neighborhood, and uh, there's a very detailed Weezer reference as to wow. why I know that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> and that's why that stuck in my head. They're their fifth member. You know, everybody, every band that's been together long enough has a member that isn't on stage that keeps everybody together. Okay, um, and Carl Coke. Co. Is cook. Uh, co- cook. Cook. You, did you just, did you I just, just mess cook? it up? You just said cook. I just messed it up. Did I just mess up my own thing? I think you might have. That was Carl Cook. It's Co. It's Co. It's gotta be Co. It's K O C. It's gotta be Co. It's okay. Co. It's, it's Co. Co. It's Co. Isn't there a country singer or something, Co? Co Wetzel? Is That's a- K O E, though. Oh. He's the weed guy? <laughs> Big weed guy. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I think he's the one who had the 420 concert with, with Snoop. With Snoop Doggy Dog. Uh. Snoop D O Double G. Man, sometimes you say some words and you can smell the words. <laughs> <laughs> Those are words you can smell. Just smell skunky. Skunky, a little skunky. Episode one, for our disclaimer, um, reach out to us on social media. Reach out to us in email. Uh, this is Point Two Law Review brought to you by Anderson Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. Anything else? Popeyes has a new chicken sandwich, blackened <laughs> chicken sandwich. You know, I should have done that at the start of the episode. Maybe I'll do it at the start of the next epi, but... Do you have a review already? No. Okay, well, maybe review by Review coming. Week. Well, there's not a Popeyes in Kearney. Well, I got to go to Grand Island or Lincoln. Maybe do a road trip. Yeah, I'm going to have to. Figure it out. The pod requires it. <laughs> All right, everybody. Have a great week. I'm Thanks, John Brandt. everybody. Carson Messersmith. <laughs>